Dear friends, if you would take your copy of the scripture and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 12. And this morning, as we continue to make our way through the text, last week I left you in a spot wondering what's going to happen to Peter. It's probably not hard to figure out when your ESV gives a little heading, Peter is rescued. Uh, But we'll get to see what the Lord is doing. But to remind us of the context, I'm going to take us back to chapter 12 and verse 1. And I've decided to to stop short of what I put in the bulletin there. I'm going to stop at verse 17. Before we read Scripture together, let's ask the Lord to minister to our hearts through His Word. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we come in need of the power of Your Spirit to take us who by nature are just natural men and must have the enlightening work of the Spirit of God to illumine the truth to us. So Lord, would You pour out Your Spirit upon us that we would see the great things found in Your Word and cause Your Word as it's proclaimed to be received as it is. Not the Word of man, but the Word of You, our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scripture? Acts chapter 12, and again, I'm going to start in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Well, thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, throughout the book of Acts and in Jesus' ministry generally, we've seen this back and forth with the devil. The kingdom comes in power, miracles are worked, souls are saved, the gospel goes to the nations, and then Satan, though a defeated foe thrown down through the victorious resurrection of Christ, he yet rages at the church. Now thus far in Acts, Satan has provoked intimidation tactics, the Jewish leaders aiming to silence the apostles. That didn't work. And then the devil upped the ante with imprisonment and beatings. That didn't work either, so he tried something else. He struck within the church, lying and coveting church members, Ananias and Sapphira, complaints arising when the widows were overlooked, a man baptized who later wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And if those internal attacks weren't enough, there's now been more external attacks, the stoning of Stephen, threats of death against the converted Saul of Tarsus, and then the latest in our text, James beheaded and Peter bound waiting for the sword. It all sounds incredibly bleak, doesn't it? And from one perspective, it it really is. Threats are striking the church from all directions. The devil is unleashing his fury. But for all this storm and stress, Satan hasn't squashed the gospel at all. The gospel has now reached the ends of the earth as it begins to go to the Gentiles. And even as fierce tribulation comes back in Jerusalem with Peter in chains, the faithful saints fly to the Lord in prayer. And what we're going to see is what we've seen over and over throughout all of the Bible, including the ministry of our Lord and what has transpired so far in Acts. Satan throws his best shots. He gives his knockout blows and he is thwarted at every turn. Well, here we see the devil thwarted again. And we're going to note two things in our text. We're going to spend a little more time on the first one. First, I want you to see with me two vigils. Two vigils. Now, we're kind of backing up a little bit to verse 5 and picking up, and we'll make our way to verse 11. So when we left off last week, we were in a bit of a cliffhanger. Peter in prison, the church in prayer. And we noted the significance of the setting. All of this was going on during Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread to follow. Herod intended to bring Peter out at the end of that feast to publicly execute him. But the church, remembering that our God is a God of deliverance, the God who rescues from satanically stirred men like Pharaoh of old, which is what that whole feast was about, the rescue at the Exodus, to satanically filled men in the present like Herod. The church is stirred up to cry out to the God of the Exodus, the God who has not changed, who raised Jesus from the dead, that he might intervene for Peter. So the church, in their emergency, holds a vigil. Now, the passage is going to show us that the guards are also holding a vigil of sorts. They're watching Peter through the night. But during the same night, the saints are in prayer, looking to the Lord to help. Now, verse 5 tells us the church was engaged 
notice the modifier, in earnest prayer for Peter. And that word earnest is significant. I want us to think about it in a minute. The root word there is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. Hebrews comments that Jesus was offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who is able to save Him from death. So an earnest prayer is talking about impassioned, whole-souled praying. The saints here in this room were like Jacob of old, taking hold of God, not letting Him go. They were clinging to Him, casting their cares before Him, counting on Him to hear and to help. And brethren, that is a model to us of faithful praying. Now to pray like this, to pray with earnestness or fervency, it requires at least two things of us. First, it demands that we truly believe that our God is able to deliver. When we pray, we must pray believing. Jesus addresses this in Mark chapter 11. James tells us that when we come before the Lord and ask for wisdom, you need to ask in faith and you need to drive out your doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. You're tossed to and fro. We're not to come as double-minded people, but clinging to the Lord, knowing His power. We rest our confidence in His greatness and His grace that He's mighty to save. And don't we see His delivering power all over the Scripture to fortify our faith? Whether it be Joseph raised up in Egypt, Israel brought through the sea, David rescued again and again and again from Saul's hand, the mouths of lions shut before Daniel, one walking in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We believe that that is our God, brethren. He hasn't changed. So the chains that are shackling Peter are not things that can bind the power of God. If the Lord can break the bars of death, then nothing is too hard for Him. Well, when we pray, do we look at God like this? Do we believe that His arm is not too short? His power is in no way limited so that He can help. Earnest prayer turns away from the wind and the waves of trouble to see the God who calms the storm. So we drive out unbelief and doubt knowing that with even a mustard seed of faith, we, by God's grace, can move mountains. Is this the way that we pray? Eyeing an omnipotent sovereign who governs all of His creatures, actions, and things and knowing that He has the power to help us. May we pray with the greatness of God in view. That's fervent or earnest prayer. But then there's a second thing required to pray earnestly. And it's submission. Submission. We see this in Jesus' earnest prayer in the garden. He cries loudly and with tears, and yet He says, famously, not my will, but yours be done. Don't we see the same kind of thing with Daniel's three friends before this idol Nebuchadnezzar has erected? They're threatened that if they don't bow down to this false god that the king of Babylon put up, they will be thrown into the fire. And they tell the king, we're not going to do it. Our God is able to deliver. He has the power to intervene. But even if He doesn't, we will not bow down. 
You see what they're doing? They're not presuming upon the Lord. They're submitting to His providence. Even if He doesn't come to deliver us in this moment, we will not serve this idol. They trust the Lord. And likewise here in our passage, the saints are making their hearts known to God concerning Peter. And yet at the same time, they're resting themselves in His care, in God's determination as to what is best. You know, Acts 12 is a really interesting study in the providence of God. On the one hand, James is killed. There's no prolonged imprisonment. There's no prayer vigil for him. There's no deliverance. He's swiftly cut down as though the church didn't even have time to pray. But Peter, on the other hand, is locked up for a season. And in that season, the saints have time to cry out to God. And then God hears and God will deliver, as we're about to see. But you should be asking, why is James martyred, but Peter lives on? Why is there time to plead with the Lord concerning Peter, but James is suddenly struck down? Now, of course, if you're really thinking, you'll recognize these are truly unanswerable questions. We can simply say, as we'll sing later, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, his judgments are unsearchable. His way is inscrutable. But what the Lord does here, both with James and with Peter, is for His own glory. And something that we need to get as we submit to God in prayer is God glorifies His name in different ways for all of us. We don't all get the same answer to the particular prayer, except that we're all going to glory when it's over with. We see this in history as well, don't we? It's something of a, a striking thing in the, in the mission field. I think of some who are given long life and others who are struck down. And I'm thinking particularly of one of my favorite missionary biographies, which is John G. Payton, uh, the king of the cannibals, as Spurgeon called him. He goes to an island where just a few years before, a man named John Williams and uh, another guy named James they were beaten with clubs and eaten upon the moment of arriving at the island. And then John G. Payton goes, and he has decades of ministry among the cannibals on these islands. Why are some immediately cut down and others allowed to live on? Why does John Newton live into his 80s and people are telling him, John, you're too old and you're saying weird things in the pulpit and you need to Stop preaching. And he says, shall the African blasphemer be silent? I was formerly a man who was evil and I will keep declaring the Lord until I die. And then there are others like Robert Murray McShane who's 29 years old and a great preacher and the Lord takes him out. Why is this perplexity in providence? Well, ultimately, we can't answer that question. But there has to be submission to the will of God. We have to declare like Paul does in Philippians 1 that Christ would be honored in our bodies whether by life or by death. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we plead with the Lord, when we make our desires known to God and look for His deliverance, do we yet submit to His sovereign will? Do we entrust our hands to His Father believing that our Father knows best? Brethren, you can make an earnest prayer to the Lord and do it in such a way that you put God in a box. 
God can only do this. He can only deliver in the way that I define deliverance. We can be like Jairus, the synagogue official who came to Jesus, telling Jesus that Jesus must lay his hands on his little girl to heal her. That is not how things are going to go down. Jesus and his providence will actually permit the little girl to die. He'll do the same thing with Lazarus, interestingly. But Jesus will shatter Jairus' confining thoughts about who he is and what he can do and tell him after the little girl dies, do not fear, only believe. In other words, trust me. In the case of Jairus' daughter, Jesus raises the girl. But with some, like Stephen, who's stoned, like James, who is beheaded, God permits his people to be cut down. So when we pray earnestly, we don't pray presumptuously, as though to tell God, you have to do this. Prayer is, as our shorter catechism starts to define it, an offering up of our desires unto God. We tell God what we want, brethren. We pour out our hearts to the Lord. We offer up our desires. And then the next phrase, for things agreeable to His will. Are our prayers filled with honest desires expressed to the God who made heaven and earth and yet in submission to His will? That's how to pray fervently, earnestly. May we learn the lesson. Well, as the prayer vigil continues, we turn now to the vigil of the soldiers. Verse 4 had told us that there were four squads of soldiers. Each squad, by the way, had four guys. And verse 6 when Herod was about to bring Peter out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. It's like Fort Knox in Peter's cell. Sixteen soldiers are involved in round-the-clock guarding attention. And at the moment, Peter is chained not just to one, but to two guys. And even if somehow he were to break his chains and beat these guys off, and make a run for it, there's still two guys guarding the door at all times. This is a dire situation. It appears hopeless. But then notice what Peter is doing. Did you catch it? When the guards are giving him undivided attention. He's asleep. Now that's not weird in one sense, right? It's the middle of the night. But this isn't any night. This is the night before on the morrow, Peter's going to have his head chopped off. Could you sleep? at a time like that? Could you rest knowing that the sword is soon to remove your head from the rest of your body? That may be a tough night to get some sleep. But Peter is sleeping. Gone is the panic of Luke chapter 8 when a nighttime storm struck a boat, Peter's boat, and the fishermen woke Jesus up to say, Master, Master, we are perishing. Instead, now Peter is sleeping like Jesus. He can sleep in a storm. This is the fruit of God's grace in Peter's life that in fierce affliction, he can rest himself in the care of his wise, holy, and faithful father. And how can he do that? Because Peter knows even if he dies, it only brings him near to Jesus. So death, while it could be painful, it's just a thing to pass through to get to Christ. Death and all of its terror can't separate from the Lord Jesus. So Peter rests. Friends, 
Look at what faith, a living faith, does for both the body and the soul. Look at the peace Peter can have and the turmoil all around him. How can we have that kind of peace when facing death? It's only having repented and believed in Christ that we rest ourselves in His care, that we submit to His will, and we believe His love will not let us go. Death is everywhere. It's everywhere in our church right now. Distress is squeezing. Do we have a settled conscience that when we approach death, we're going to be fine? Can we pillow our heads in peace? Because the Lord's got me. And it's all going to be well. May our eyes be locked upon the Lord like Peter's are here. And yet, while Peter does, doesn't know what's about to happen, look at how the Lord answers prayer. Verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. There are at least four echoes of Passover, the first one, in this little scene. Uh, for one, the angel tells Peter to move with haste. Get up and leave right now. That's exactly what the children of Israel will have to do after they eat the Passover. Like Israel on the journey, secondly, out of Egypt. Israel was guided by an angel. Peter's being guided by an angel. Third, do you remember how the Israelites were supposed to eat the first Passover? Dressed, their belt around uh, their flowing garments, with their sandals on their feet. It's interesting. Peter's told, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And then, when Israel left, they were totally dependent upon the power of God. They were helpless. Everything had to be cast upon the Lord and He had to provide for them. You remember the words of Moses when they come to the bank of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's behind them coming. Fear not, stand firm, and watch the salvation which the Lord will work for you today. In other words, Israel is passive, and God is doing it all. It's exactly what we see here. Peter is asleep when this whole thing starts. He's doing nothing. Everything happening. Chains falling off. Guards somehow blind, deaf, and unfeeling. They don't see the heavenly light. They don't hear the chains fall to the ground. They don't feel Peter get up. Everything happening is occurring by the power of the initiating God of grace. And then the Lord, through His angel, provides for Peter by leading him out. Peter doesn't even realize this is happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. But the angel really led him, verse 10, past the first guard and then the second guard and caused the iron gate to open of its own accord into the city. Look at all the obstacles the Lord our God overcomes through this angel. Chains, multiple guards, iron gates. This is incredible. Human effort to bind Peter to prevent any possible escape is shown to be totally futile. Herod had given quite a lot of detailed attention to prevent any intervention from God. And yet with everything he does, he still can't stop it. He's flat wrong about the power of God. The greatest display of man's strength totally fails before the power of our God. Brethren, men can do their worst they can scheme up the best tactics to strike God's people. They can be, bring fierce weapons against us. They can lay out their bigot threats. But if God chooses to deliver shackles, iron gates, 185,000 Assyrians, Pharaoh's army with chariots, even lions can't prevail. And do you see how 
effortless this is. We're not hearing about a plan of the Navy SEALs coming in, planning an op, scheming it up with advanced intelligence, drone footage coming back. It's just one angel making bonds break, paralyzing soldiers, opening doors and gates. And in case you haven't already embraced this biblical truth, our God is infinite in power. And He can do all that pleases Him. This is our God. The fury of the devil can come against us. But if God is for us, nothing can ever succeed. What God determines to do, no power can thwart. What a comfort that should be to us. And shouldn't it make us more readily submit to the providence of God? We don't have to be anxious in any situation with a God like this. For even if He chooses not to deliver us in a distressing spot, even if we face death, death can't cut us off from the Lord. Well, Peter isn't sure it's real until the angel leaves him standing in the middle of the street. And then he came to himself, verse 11, we're told. And he says out loud, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent His angel and that He delivered me. Peter is describing it all to the power of God. It's an interesting little moment of self-reflection because Peter is talking out loud to himself. You probably do this, but are you quoting biblical truth to yourself? That's what Peter's doing. It's biblical to talk to yourself. It just matters what you say. You need to quote the truth of the Lord to yourself. The whole scene is like a little exodus where the Lord rescued His people from Egypt because when the hand of enemies come against us, God's mighty hand can deliver. But then secondly, see, two responses in our text in verses 12 and following. Peter's awake to what's happened and he heads to Mary's house. John Mark's mom, verse 12, where many were gathered together and were praying. Some have wondered if this large house with a courtyard and enough space for a gathering of believers is the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with His disciples. It's possible. Some would say it might even be probable. We just don't know for sure. What is sure is this is the first mention of John Mark. John is his Hebrew name. Mark is his Greek name. This is Barnabas' cousin. He will soon go with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey that won't end so well. But Mark will be ultimately the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark as Peter's interpreter. None of that's really the focus here. For now, we look at a weird interaction in the courtyard. Peter is knocking at the gate. The saints are praying and a servant girl, Rhoda, comes to answer. Now, presumably, a shroud of fear is hanging over the whole scene. The saints are gathered and praying, but they're being careful and quiet. But the quietness starts to go out the window. When Rhoda hears what she knows to be Peter's voice in verse 14. Now, clearly, Rhoda is a believer who knows what Peter's voice sounds like. She's heard him preach the gospel. She recognizes who he is. And she's so overjoyed at the answer to prayer that she forgets to open the gate. She just runs in to the brethren and tells them, reporting that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, Rhoda's joy, the response really we ought to have to answered prayer in the Lord's intervention is then set in contrast with the church's initial unbelief. Look at verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. It's actually the same phrase that was used 
of Jesus by unbelievers. Some said he had, he had a demon. Others said that Jesus was out of his mind. It's a phrase that will be used against Paul in Acts 26 by an unbeliever, Festus. Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. You are out of your mind. Normally, unbelievers say things like this, talking to a Christian. That's not what we have here, though. But she kept insisting that it was so. Peter's really standing at the door. It's him. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, this interaction is intriguing for several reasons. One, note the irony here that believers are praying earnestly for Peter's deliverance. But then the very person who tells them that their prayers are answered, they call crazy. She's ecstatic and they're slinging accusations. She's full of joy and all they can do is insult her. Now, it appears while they did pray believing, trusting in the power of God, that's what it means to pray earnestly, after a lengthy period of prayer, and this may have been days, Peter was imprisoned for days during the feast, maybe as long as a week. So after they had been praying for a little while, they fell into, that's impossible. Have you ever found yourself falling to, into a position of soul in your heart? You, you pray earnestly and then suddenly that's impossible. They know it's physically impossible for Peter to escape and be at the door. And while they asked for deliverance, they didn't expect this. But our God is a God who does exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or even think. And isn't this a picture to us here of the frailty of our faith as believers? At one moment, we have fervent expectation and faith-filled prayers, and then at another moment, our faith just falls flat and doubt fills our minds. Maybe the Lord's Day is a glorious day of great confidence in the power of God, and then Monday morning hits, and all the same anxieties wash over our soul. And we begin to wonder, could God do something so dramatic, so outside the box as this? And yet it's oddly comforting, isn't it? Because we're seeing even the best of believers are weak and prone to wonder. We can, see, we can be so schizophrenic, if I can put it that way at times, confident and then skeptical. Prayers full of boldness and then we're seized with anxiety. The Psalms show us this in real time often as they convey the struggle and the presentation of struggle before the Lord. And then there's another Psalm picking up the same struggle. And doesn't it all illustrate to us how desperate we all are for a Savior to save us from ourselves? Brethren, if our salvation rested on the strength of our faith, where would we be? We would be sunk. We're like Peter at times who's ready to go to Christ on the water. And then suddenly we forget that we're walking to Christ in the water and we see the wind and waves and we begin to fall and we have to cry out, Lord, save me. When you read of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, you find that this is what God's people are like. Whether Abraham, Moses, or David, praise God that He bears with us in our poor responses and He's willing to grow our faith. Indeed, doesn't this scene reveal truly how kind He is in our failings He's still with us. He intervenes for us. He hears our cry and He acts for people who say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, do you say this 
in your prayers. And the second thing that's interesting is the argument that ensues while Peter is outside waiting. Peter's humming the Jeopardy theme at the door and Rhoda doesn't back off arguing with the brethren. She keeps insisting. She knew what she heard. And she tells them about it. And the church bickered with her and they kept saying, this is really an argument. While they were just praying, should remind you of the disciples arguing at the Lord's Supper about who's the greatest. They kept arguing with her. No, it's just his angel. They wouldn't accept her testimony. The first time, the second time, the third time. And could this be another little illustration in Luke's writing of a despised, lowly person being the model of discipleship while everybody else is failing? It's the kind of thing we see when the women are the first to see Jesus and testify that he's alive and then none of the guys believe them. But interestingly, in this case, Rhoda isn't just a woman. She's a girl, a servant girl. It's the same word used of the servant girl who scared Peter into turning or betraying the Lord in that moment where he denied Christ. She's a nobody. She's not just a woman. She's a girl. And she's not just a girl. She's a servant girl. She has no status. And yet she's the model of discipleship. If Rhoda hadn't stood her ground and Peter hadn't kept knocking, they've all would have been stuck in unbelief. It's a wonder, really, Peter didn't just go to some other house. But in God's providence, he stays that the people might be changed. And there's a third intriguing thing. The church's response to Rhoda, it is his angel. What in the world does that mean? Do they think those who guard the people of God somehow bear the likeness of the people of God and even can sound like them? That's a really weird thought. But there's some evidence to suggest there were Jews at this period who believed stuff like that, even though the Bible is totally silent about it. You can be a believer and believe some weird stuff. Should be a reminder to all of us, make sure you're examining what you think by the Word of God. Further, are they saying that every believer has a specific guardian angel? Now, we don't know what they were thinking for sure, but what I do know is Scripture gives no clear evidence elsewhere that each believer has a Clarence. You know, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. It's a great Christmas movie. It's a horrible theological explanation of the gospel. There's no gospel in that movie. It's all about good works. Horrible theology. Interesting Christmas movie. What we know is that angels do guard us, right? Psalm 34 the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Psalm 91, the one the devil quotes back to Jesus, that the angels will bear you up so you won't strike your foot against a stone. Daniel 6 is an angel who shuts the mouth of lions. That's abundantly clear. But let's not try to build a whole narrative of the work of angels off of this particular text, which really conveys no positive information. It's an argument, and it's a bad one at that. Well, Peter keeps knocking. Someone finally goes to the gate. Verse 16, they opened it. They see Peter and they are amazed. And evidently the amazement is more than oohs and ahs. It's probably shouting and screams of bewilderment and joy because Peter has to tell them, be quiet. The situation is so tense around Jerusalem. Snooping people are always around. And the church could get ratted on, so to speak, and more trouble could come. Just because Peter was delivered doesn't mean he thinks, hey, everybody can hoot and holler and we can pretend like there are no enemies around. No, that's not the case. But notice what Peter does. 
he tells them the story of what God did. And interestingly, though he was so insistent about coming in the house, he kept knocking at the gate, he just leaves. Verse 17, he says, tell these things to James, to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. This tells us, brethren, that this same nighttime prayer gathering that we're seeing here, or this upper room place where people are praying, not all the believers are present. James, who will meet later to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem, this is James, the Lord's brother, not the James, obviously, who's just been beheaded. He isn't there. The apostles likely aren't there. And it's a reminder that the church is huge in Jerusalem. And they all can't be in one place. And yet it's still called the church. The church is filled with thousands of converts in the city, but they all can't get together in one spot. They would have had house churches scattered throughout the city. And even the little church can be called the church. Well, Peter isn't going to take the time to go to every single church and tell them what happened. Rather, with his life in danger, he just moves on. Now, Luke doesn't tell us where Peter goes. We won't hear from Peter again until a year or two later in Acts 15. Because where Peter goes isn't important. What is important, and we'll close with these thoughts, is that God has answered prayer and the testimony to his answer must be told. This group of people filled with doubts at Rhoda's testimony are now given the privilege to testify of what the Lord has done. Isn't that similar to the resurrection scenes? The first official witnesses are the guys who were really the first doubters. But the Lord has opened their eyes. He's rescued them from their unbelief. And now they have an opportunity to speak of God's great power. Well, that's what he's doing here. Dear friends, praise God that is the case. The Lord doesn't only use those who respond well all the time. The Lord uses people who have to have their doubts overcome that they would speak His truth. And if you're here this morning and you're a person who has entertained doubt about the power of God, the Lord can still use even the likes of you to testify of His greatness. God has only one group of people to work with. Sinners. And He's pleased to rescue sinners and to use them to speak of His great power. Shouldn't that make us thankful that the Lord has manifested His power to us and enabled us to testify of how great He truly is. Praise the Lord for His kindness to His people. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before You recognizing how weak our faith is and how our prayers can be a strange mixture of anxiety and assurance. And yet we come and we acknowledge that You are the Savior, that You are the God of great power, and we thank You that You allow us to testify of how great Your power is. Lord, help us to be a people who submit to Your providence and trust that You know what You're doing, that You do all things well, that You are great and mighty to save. And Lord, let us cast ourselves upon You the rock of our salvation. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.